0: Welcome, listeners, to the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Now, when we launched the show back in January 2019, I imagined we might attract, say, a few hundred listeners in the UK. But here we are, 10 months on, with nearly 20,000 downloads in 50 countries worldwide. The global reach of the show has made me realise that we must not be too UK-centric. So for this episode, we get properly international. Mark Hannon rose up the ranks to run the Trident Agency in London and became a founding partner of the Engage Group with the consultant and author, John Smythe. Then 10 years ago, he left the UK for India with his wife and two very young children to set up a brand and communications agency in Mumbai. A decade on, Mark has written a book, Midnight's Grandchildren, exploring the unique mindset of Indians millennials. I caught up with him during a recent trip to the UK to learn more about the largest democracy on earth and how we, as internal communicators can improve the way we analyse and respond to cultural differences. Mark, thank you so much for being on the Internal Comms podcast. We've got a lot of intercontinental things to discuss, but before we do, I wonder if we can start a little bit chronologically with your agency life in London, because you were with Trident, and then after that, the Engage Group, working with, of course, John Smythe, people might know, the author of the Chief Engagement Officer. That's right, yeah. I don't want you to dish the dirt too much, unless you're happy to, but what are the Highs and lows from memory of that time.
1: Yeah, so I joined uh, what was then Barker's Trident Communications and became Trident Communications, I think, in 1995. And I joined as a sort of fairly junior copywriter. And then over a period of about eight or nine years, I sort of moved my way up the ranks... I obviously proved to be fairly competent, both in terms of my sort of copywriting and then in terms of my ability to manage some of our key clients, and ultimately then got to the point where my I, along with Peter Ayrtoft and Simon Bowden, who were two of my co-directors, bought out the business from... Alan Peeford and Chris Murray, who were the two founders of that business, which I think, you know, was one of, at the time, a sort of leading internal communications, primarily a sort of publishing-based business. But I think it did some interesting and innovative work, I think particularly in terms of sort of bringing newsstand values into the world of internal communications. And I was able to participate in that. And that was fun. And I got to work with some fantastic clients, which included people like Shell and Accenture and BP and Pfizer, you know, so global organisations. And I got to travel quite extensively and I had a lot of fun in doing that mm. and so yeah we bought that business which was a very interesting experience one of the things that I learned was that even though in legal terms your name is above the door you never really own those businesses when they have a history of being owned by other people and so that was a very interesting experience in terms of the transition from being an employee to being an owner of a business like that not always an easy transition right we then two years later sold to a private equity investor and then put some of the money into a new business, which became the Engage Group. And that was, again, a very interesting period, challenging in many ways. Essentially, what we'd done was tried to put together what had been the Trident business with a business called Limehouse, which some of your listeners, I'm sure, will remember, which had a sort of stronger design and digital arm to Mm. it. So we felt that there was potentially quite a nice fit. And John Smythe and Engage for Change and Jerome came on board and was, if you like, the sort of third leg of that. That was a really challenging experience. And one of the things that I learned is how difficult it is to create value through merger and acquisition. Oh, really? The cultural differences between those, if you like, three different businesses were quite significant. So I think that there were some impediments mm. to its success but bear in mind that this was also happening in the period of 2006 2007 and into 2008 where you know there was a recession mm. looming and we had the what's become known as a sort of global economic crisis and clients were not wanting to spend money and we got quite a lot of debt in that business and it was difficult to service and it was not a happy experience for many of us but there are lots of things that I learned from that which on reflection I've been able to make good use of but you know at the time they were perhaps somewhat painful yeah and, you know Life moves on. So yes, I had quite a good run, if you will, of being in the agency world in London, which had been a lot of fun.
0: What were the lessons that you took from that, that you've now, because obviously run a very successful business, two very successful businesses. What were the particular lessons do you think that you sort of took away from that experience? Well, so one
1: of the things that Money, who's my wife, also co-founder of the two businesses, agreed on was that we were not going to have any external investors in our business. So we made a decision, which was that we were going to own those. And we recognised the fact that that may mean that our growth was slower, but we also recognised the fact that we were not going to be beholden to other people. Because I think, you know, one of the problems that we'd experienced was the fact that you've got money in a business and that that money doesn't necessarily come with people who understand your business and so right. that can create tensions and complexity that we felt we didn't want to get into again so we said okay we're going to grow this from our own funds we've got some seed money we said we'll grow it and as I say you know we recognize the fact that that might be slower growth but that we would be the only ones who we were having to answer to.
0: Yes. But at the same time
1: the other thing that I learned was that by having private equity investors in a business I learned a huge amount about the finances of a business. Right yes. Although at the time I found that to be a somewhat painful experience you know looking back on it for the last decade I've had an intimate knowledge about the numbers in a business and about where to make investments and how to manage the cash flow Mm. and you know I think looking back on it those are things that were great lessons to have learned but I think ultimately that point that I made which is about the difficulty of being able to create value through the process of merger and acquisition I think many many businesses can see that on a spreadsheet that looks like a really great opportunity and the reality of it is very often very different and what I think that that then does is having had first-hand experience of that having had some skin in the game as they say means that actually you're then well qualified to go and talk to large organizations who may be going through some of that process and who are looking at the communications aspect of that could be acquisition it could be merger it could be divestment but you're then qualified in a sense to be able to go and act as an advisor is it because you've been through it perhaps on a different scale but you've learned some of the lessons and I think that that was also something which I benefited from
0: yeah no I can totally understand you understand the language you understand what they're what they're trying to achieve through the merger and acquisition yeah. and how important the numbers are and how they often do drive the story basically yeah,
1: But also what you learn I think is how important the cultural aspect of it is And that's an area where you really need to invest. And when I say cultural, I think, you know, ultimately that that comes down to a communications activity and a lot of the failures that we see in that process of merger and acquisition ultimately Mm. comes down to the fact that people haven't got a good communications plan in place. They fail to recognise the significant challenge of bringing together organisations that have different histories and different cultures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what prompted then the big move, because you had young children at the time, To think, I'm going to go off and I'm going to start a new life and set up new businesses in India.
1: A combination of factors, really. You know, one of which was that I had an opportunity to leave the engaged group and go off and do something else. We'd got some money in the bank. It wasn't retirement money, but it was seed money, if you like. So I had ideas about going off and doing something different. There are two drivers for it really, one of which is familial because my wife, Money, is ethnically Indian, born in Africa, grew up in the north of England and we had been an office romance. We'd both been working together at uh, Trident Communications. She has family in India. I had a growing knowledge of and interest in India as a place and we, as you say, had two young children. Our daughter was then one year old and our son two and a half. Mm. So you know they are ethnically half Indian and Mm. I thought that it might be Interesting for them to go and spend some time in India, to know their Indian-born cousins, to be able to learn Indian languages, in part because I could see the rise of India as part of, if you like, the rise of Asia. And some of that came to me in a professional context. So, for example, we'd had Chorus as a client, yes. which you will remember had been British Steel, you know, a significant member of the FTSE 100. Yes, yes. And it was then bought by an Indian company called Tata Steel. Yes. And we watched that, you know, from a professional perspective, we looked at the way in which the communications in that acquisition happened. And there were lots of things where, as professional communicators, we thought "Hmm, that could have been done differently, perhaps could have been done better. But also, at the same time, it signalled to me that there was a sort of change happening in the world and where power lay, and the fact that you'd got interesting instances where Indian companies were moving outside of India, creating international footprints and acquiring assets in other parts of the world. And I thought that, in essence, sort of laid the seed of an idea, which was that was there an opportunity to go and take some of the strategic corporate communications thinking that I'd developed over the previous sort of 10 or 12 years and apply that in that Indian context? Um, Mm. I raised this as a sort of idea with my colleagues at the Engage Group, who just really were very dismissive of it. But I think in a sense they thought that the world had gone mad. You know, in a sense, how was it possible that stalwarts of the FTSE 100 were being bought by Indian companies. You know, after all, hadn't we previously owned India for 150 years? You know, how was this possible that Indian companies were coming in and acquiring those assets? Whereas for me, given that I had a perhaps increasing familiarity with India and I was watching what was happening in Asia, I thought, no, actually, this is a sort of moment, uh, perhaps a tipping point or a moment of transition. And that that might be an interesting place to go and explore in a professional context and so money and i went with two very small children and a couple of suitcases and we set up a business on our dining table and we said we'll give it two years right and we'll then see is there really a business opportunity here
0: And that was 15 years ago? 10 years
1: ago. 10 years ago. Yeah, so there were two business opportunities that we saw, one of which was that one that I've described, which was around ambitious Indian companies moving out, creating international footprints. And my thesis was that they needed some help with their corporate communications, right? Because I didn't think that they were skilled or there wasn't a background or a context or a set of skills that were available to them in order to be able to help them go out and engage new groups of stakeholders so that was one opportunity India as a market if you like globalizing India as a market yes and the other piece was you know just as you know what it's like to run a business based in prime real estate in London and Mm. the costs of maintaining teams of writers and designers and production staff. Absolutely. So the other part was that we saw India as a source of talent and we Mm. thought that there was also potentially an interesting business model which was about saying rather than maintaining banks of people in expensive offices in London or in New York or wherever, could some of that work be done out of a lower cost Locations such as india so Mm. we sort of went and explored those Mm. two business ideas
0: now you have me at something of a disadvantage here because i've never been to india although i very much would love and plan to go but paint me a picture of mumbai you're landing there with two very young children and i did do a little bit of reading as i say because i've not been and i found this amazing lonely planet description which says something like mumbai formerly bombay of course is big full of dreamers and hard laborers, starlets and gangsters, stray dogs and exotic birds. It's got some of Asia's biggest slums as well as the world's most expensive home. It's got tropical rainforests. And it's also a powerhouse, of course, of of finance and fashion and so on. And it says a pulse point also of religious tension. So this sounds like this most amazing place of high contrast. What was it actually like getting to grips with living with a young family in a place that sounds so different from London?
1: Well, it was an adventure. I mean, clearly. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, it is all of those things that you've described. It's a mega city. Officially, its population is about 15 million people, but unofficially it's probably in excess of 20 million because you've lots of people who are internal migrants who've come from other parts of India but who are not registered. And lots of those are the people that live in those very large slum areas. I think they reckon that about 50% of Mumbai's population, you know, lives in informal slum type.
0: Right. Wow. Right, wow.
1: And you have that cheek by jowl with the world's most expensive residential I... home. Really? Residential building, yeah, mm. which sort of towers over South Mumbai. It is, if you like, the commercial capital of the country, New Delhi, of course, being the sort of political and administrative centre. It's also the home to Bollywood, the Indian film industry. Right. One of the things that's sort of interesting about it, if you think about the US and Hollywood, you know, the film industry is on one side of the continent and the money is on the other side. Ah. The money's in New York and the film uh, business is always happening over in California. One of the great things about Mumbai is that both of those industries are Side by side, right? So you've mm. got the money and the movies in the same city. Which again is you know can be quite a potent mix. It means there's always a good party if you know yes. the right people. <laughs> you know, so it's a fun city. It's a sort of star maker city. You know, in the way that lots of people come to London
0: to make ambition, their name. Yeah, yes.
1: absolutely. In the creative industries that you and I have worked in. It's a magnet for talent.
0: There's that sort of huge young population that must be yeah. massively changing the world of work with aspirations that maybe are very different from their parents and certainly very different from their grandparents but then also india's place on the world stage must be changing as well and you must have seen that even in the last decade have you
1: let's start with the size of the population right it is a young country i can't remember exactly what the number is but something like 800 million people under the age of 35 there's a bulge in the working age population there are, as you say, one million young Indians who become of working age. You have to be careful about how that's described. We could say they come into the workforce, but the reality is that India doesn't create a million jobs a month. But there are that volume of people who are of working age. Now, that's a huge potential for India, what's described as its demographic dividend. But it also poses significant challenge to It's government in terms of, you know, how do you create or how do you enable private business to create the jobs that are going to keep those people satisfied and meet their aspiration. It has experienced significant economic growth over the past two and a half decades. If we just sort of step back, and this is really where the sort of premise for my book came, India has really seen two moments of transformation over the past century. So you have independence in 1947 from the British You then get this era that was really of low growth and scarcity and lack of opportunity for about five decades. And then in 1991, you get the economic liberalisation and the opening up of the economy, which is a trigger for significant, fast-paced economic growth. Mm. So you've got a generation of young people who are now coming into the workforce, India's millennials, if you will, who've grown up in an era which is characterised by essentially abundance and opportunity and it contrasts significantly with that previous era which was about austerity scarcity and lack of opportunity and so you can see that there's tension there intergenerational tension Um, and the reality is that most institutions and when I say institutions you know I mean the family marriage the workplace and to a degree the world of brands where all of the structures and the systems and the processes and the policies are actually all geared to that previous era which was about lack of opportunity yes and these young people are coming into if you take the workplace as an example they're ambitious young people who look at some of those structures and systems and just say well they're not really fit for purpose anymore Mm -hmm. so again in the workplace you've got a lot of tension and some of the people that I spoke to in the book are people who have a responsibility if you will to try and figure out how they're going to change their organizations in order to make them a bit more welcoming for that ambitious young group of people who are now coming into the workforce and you've got another two decades of it yeah so you've got that whether it's a million or there or thereabouts a month for the next two decades incredible phenomenal potential if you can harness that
0: yes would you equate indians millennials with ours so this degree of you know wanting a fairly high degree of autonomy at the same time caring very much about the purpose of the work that they do
1: So I think there are some things about that sort of millennial mindset, if you will, which are common between the two, particularly when you look at educated urban elites in India. I ended up identifying what I thought were three kind of differences between millennials in developed markets and India's millennials. And those are these. The first of which is what I described as the delta of change. So the fact that, you know, in the West you've had, I guess... In the era since the end of the Second World War, let's say, you've had a series of quite incremental social, economic, political revolutions or transformations. So, my sense when I was a teenager was that I was radically different from my father, who's 26 years older than me. And on reflection, you think, I'm actually, not really very different. Mm. Because there was that sort of, as I said, incremental change over time. Whereas in mm. India, as I've described, you get these two moments of transformation. And Therefore, I think that that generational gap, that delta of change, is much more significant, and that plays out in a number of ways. You know, there's some really interesting, innovative 21st-century businesses that are doing interesting things with artificial intelligence, blockchain, and other sort of digital technologies. So, very much sort of living in the 21st century. But at the same time, I don't have to travel very far away from my home to find areas which are still essentially feudal in terms wow. of the way in which they are ordered and the role of people and the existence and the prevalence of the caste system for example Mm. and you've sort of got all points in between Mm. so you know in a sense you've got almost a physical sense that India lives in different centuries simultaneously but I also think that there's something which is more about it's a sort of socio-psychological kind of thing which is that many Indians are very accustomed to being able to live in different ways At the same time, there is an agility about the Indian mindset, which I think I don't necessarily see in my nephews and nieces who aren't British millennials but I do see in my nephews and nieces in India so for example you know things which are done within the family context which might be about what you eat so it might be that your home environment is vegetarian and that you don't drink alcohol but you're very comfortable going out and eating mm. what would be described as non-veg food outside and drinking alcohol that may represent itself in terms of the way in which personal relationships are managed and you know the ability to act in one way at home and then to act in a different way in another environment i think one of the areas that's that's very interesting is the role of women and the degree to which women are achieving some degree of equality in the workplace which may not be reflected in their home environment interesting yeah and yet that ability to be able to navigate that complexity to not see things as black and white but to be comfortable with that ambiguity is something which again i think distinguishes Indians, and particularly Indians, millennials. Mm. And then the third piece is this. You will be aware of, and many of your listeners will see stuff like for example the deloitte annual millennial survey yes. where they go to lots of parts of the world and you know come back with interesting reports and i think one of the key findings over the last couple of years has been the degree of optimism which they're able to spot and measure in emerging markets mm. and there's every reason why those young indians and young chinese and young people in indonesia for example should be very optimistic because actually the future looks very bright for them whereas what i think you see amongst our millennials in developed markets is you know, an uncertainty. The fact that that sort of social contract which existed since the Second World War, which sort of guaranteed that you would be better off than your parents, is broken. Lots of people can't afford to get onto the housing ladder. And so I think there's a contrast there, which is one which tends to be very optimistic, so I think india 's millennials tend to be optimistic about the future with good measure, and I think that contrasts with the experience of their contemporaries. The reality is that they 're all consuming the same content you know, mm, uh, mm. on the same devices, so there 's a lot of parity increasing the you unit, know, particularly over the last Five years or so. Mm. But again, the caveat being that that describes an urban elite. And when you get outside and you get into rural India, it's a very different story. So I think that lots of the young Indians that we employ in our businesses have much more in common with the young people that you employ in your business than they do with their rural cousins. So there's quite a divide, I think, between urban and rural.
0: Right, yeah. yes.
1: And ultimately, I think you'll have a kind of trickle down effect. So there is aspiration, but it hasn't yet manifest itself to the same degree in other mm. parts, in more rural parts mm. of India. But you've got really interesting scenarios in some of what I described as the tier two cities. So not the large metropolitan mega cities, but, you know, they're big cities. They've got populations in excess of a million people and increasingly affluent young. Populations coming into the workforce and becoming consumers.
0: Yes. Your book helps, I think, communicators grappling with cross cultural issues from a business perspective. And you do look at some academic work and some theoretical work. And I just wondered if there might might be a moment just to skip to that briefly. I was curious by your mention of the Dutch social psychologist, Gerald Hofstede. He did some interesting work at IBM in the late 1960s and 70s, didn't he, where he sort of researched the views of IBM employees around the world. Is that right? To understand the nuance, of what was going on in their minds from a cultural perspective. Is that fair? Is that a fair description?
1: Yeah, it's a very fair description. He developed this thing which I think is called the cultural dimensions theory and he had a set of six measures that he looked at in terms of being able to contrast different cultures or measure, if you will, one culture against another culture. And that's work which I'd been aware of for some time. And I thought that that was quite an interesting construct as a starting point in terms of thinking about how Indians, and particularly Indian millennials, compare or contrast to people in other parts of the world. So you've got things like the hierarchy is one of them. And India is clearly a very hierarchical society. And there's a great deal of deference to elders to seniors mm. um, and of course that's not the case in other cultures so you know that's one of the ways in which you're able to sort of make these distinctions and I also looked at Erin Meyer's book which I'm sure some of your listeners will know called The Culture Map which again I think is a sort of 21st century if you like updation if you will some of the same ideas that Hofstede was playing around with but you know his now his original thinking is in the 1960s and 70s And mm. obviously the world has moved on. So I found that those were both useful in terms of giving some measures, if you will, or anchor points in terms Mm. of how you think about different cultures and how they compare with each other. And then the other sort of piece of theory that I used was the theory of jobs to be done or what's now become known as jobs theory, which is developed by a guy called Clayton Christensen. And particularly when it came to, if you like, looking at the brands that I think have been able to capture the Indian millennial mindset. So that was my sort of triumvirate of theories, if you like, jobs mm. theory, Hofstede, and um, Erin the culture map.
0: There is, a, I think, a slight... I don't know whether to call it a dichotomy, but certainly there's a thorny issue, I think, around understanding and analysing cultural difference, because I think what I've seen in the past is people either jump too quickly to stereotypes, and my experience of trying to put someone in a pigeonhole is that they want to fly, and they will fly straight out of it as soon as you do that, or the other option, I guess, is that we say, well, we're all the same, And we mustn't make these judgment calls, and we mustn't be stereotypical about people. And ultimately, as exactly the same, we're all the same. How do you strike that balance? Where do you think the balance lies in that sort of argument? Yeah, so I
1: think that there are some areas where, you know, it's fair to say that there are cultural differences between people who grow up in different environments. I'll just go back to the Hofstede for a minute. So, you know, one of the measures that he uses is power distance. I referred to it as hierarchy earlier on. It's a bit more sophisticated than just saying that there is a hierarchy. It's about the degree to which the participants in that hierarchy accept and are willing to continue to accept the distance between each of them so not only do those who are at the top of the hierarchy accept it but also those who if you like at the bottom of the hierarchy accept it Mm. now in India you get quite a high score for power distance whereas typically in the UK or the US for example we are more inclined to say that it's important that there's some degree of parity we don't want to see significant income differences for example Again, Mm. I think that Hofstede has rooted in a past era and that may have changed somewhat Mm. um, over the last couple of decades. But, you know, I think it's reasonable to say that Indians are more willing to accept that high power difference than are people in Western Mm. democracies.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: One of the other measures that he uses is indulgence. And Indians are not indulgent, right? So you can see that in a number of different measures. The fact that rates of saving are very high. It's not okay essentially to go out and spend money and satisfy our needs in the short term. What's much more important is the fact that we're prepared to defer gratification and wait to spend money at some unknown point in the future. So I think it is realistic to say that there are differences between the two. I think, to your point, sometimes we use this idea of cultural differences actually as a way of sort of sweeping under the carpet a whole load of other stuff that it's actually sometimes a bit too difficult to get to grips with. You know? <laughs> yeah. And we kind of go, oh, well, they're like that, you know, yes. and we're like this, and we'll kind of accept that. And actually, you know, one of my conclusions is that we have much more in common than we have differences yes but I think that we're sometimes unwilling to really get to grips with that and so this idea of sort of cultural difference is sometimes used as a way of not addressing issues that probably warrant a little bit more thought
0: so if you were giving advice to someone who's listening who is grappling with the challenge of communicating with a highly diverse multinational audience what's your biggest most important piece of advice for them
1: any time that you give a presentation about communication, you end up saying that we've got two ears and one mouth and we should use them in proportion. Listening, I think, is absolutely key. But also being able to step back and think about what are my prejudices? And I don't necessarily mean prejudices in a negative way, but, you know, what is the context from which I come? And what are the things that I make assumptions about that other people are making different assumptions about? And how can I ask questions in order to be able to uncover what their context is Mm. and then be able to make some assessment about what my context is and to find the areas where we've got some area of commonality? Yeah, yeah. Which
0: brings me neatly on to my next question, which is all those listeners that might have a proportion of their global workforce in India and thinking about segmentation and tailoring their message and their content for those Indian employees. How do you best do that? What are the things that you need to be mindful of in really creating engaging content and communications? for that workforce. Yeah, so
1: one of the things that I think we see in Western organisations, let's use the UK as our starting point, is this sense that open and transparent communication is to be valued. It is something that we aspire to. So putting senior leaders in front of the people within their business and opening them up to interrogation is seen to be a good thing to do and we spend time trying to equip those leaders to go out and be able to perform and sometimes it doesn't come naturally to them as you well know absolutely you know, we kind of work hard in order to help and support them in doing that. But you're doing that in a context where, in which the audience, if you like, so the people that you're wanting them to engage with, the people that you're putting in front of, also have a kind of confidence about themselves in terms of being able to ask sometimes some difficult questions. Yeah. They can be challenging and they want to know and they feel that that could be a bit more of an equitable interaction. And you don't get that in India. Right. right? So okay. you've got. Again, highly deferential culture where, you know, you could put a chief executive in front of a group of people. They won't ask him difficult questions because it's just culturally not the thing that you do. One, you don't necessarily have the confidence yourself to go out and ask those challenging questions and you sure as hell don't do it in front of a group of your peers and potentially put yourself in an embarrassing position. And you don't do that because it just goes against everything that you've known since the day of your birth Right. in terms of how you react to and respond to people who you deem to be your seniors your superiors so i think you know in terms of thinking about how you would engage audiences you've got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of those people and i think that inevitably involves spending time with them and understanding what their sentiment and what their sensibilities are before saying right i can put something in place in terms of how we're going to engage you
0: Yes, no, that makes perfect sense. You now have two businesses, obviously, in India. I'm curious about both of them, because one, obviously, you're creating communications for Indian companies with presumably both an Indian and international workforce. On the other hand, you're also providing organisations around the world on all continents with what you're calling creative as a service. Yeah, I've heard of SaaS, but do you want to talk me through creative as a service and how that works and possibly how the whole notion of outsourcing has changed in 2019 and continues to change
1: I wrote a blog which you can find on LinkedIn a couple of months ago and I started it by saying what a difference a decade makes because 10 years ago I was sort of knocking on doors and saying I've got this idea which is about saying could we do some of that production work from India even my co-directors at the engage group were very kind of dismissive of this and I talked to other people and they were like no that won't work you won't be able to get the quality and so we're not interested now you know I was here in um, London in June I was speaking at a thing called the UK India week and there was a round table which was about creative industries and you know the discussions that I was having around that table and then with people after the event were not about does it make sense to outsource stuff to India they were like obviously that makes sense <laughs> but you know the questions were how much of it can you do can you do this part of our sort of production workflow how would that work they're very sort of technical questions about how am I going to plug into that at what point am I going to be prepared to release that what are you going to do with it what guarantees are you going to give me you know mm. so it's not about is that a good idea anymore so we sort of thought about it in terms of the world of cloud computing yes so you know a decade ago it kind of made sense that you would own licenses and they would arrive on cds mm. before that floppy disk yes and you would stick them into your computer and then you would have it for whatever the time frame was and then somebody would release a new version of it and that would arrive on a cd and you would put it yes. in there you know, now, of course, you buy your Adobe Creative Suite as a service, yeah? yes. and you pay for it on a month-by-month basis. And if you've got a peak month, then you buy extra licences, and then when you've got a lean month, you don't. Yes. Yeah? And so we said, well, why don't we apply that sort of principle to the world of production support? So, you know, rather than maintaining a full standing army of production people Mm, mm. yeah doing your page makeup or your annual report work or your film production work why don't we say let's make that available if you like on a pay as you go as and when needed Mm. service Mm, yeah so that's if you like the principle behind the creative as a service model
0: as people are grappling with shrinking budgets, the need to do more with less work becoming more of a sort of thing you do, not a place we go. We've got rising cost of real estate in all these cities. Are you onto a very interesting and the next big thing here where more and more agencies and, as you say, FTSE 250s, all kinds of organisations actually, are going to be thinking in a much more connected way, yet remote, if that makes sense, way about just getting work done. Are we going to be getting work done in a different way in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we are ready. And the cloud computing, I guess, is a sort of one obvious way in which that's happening. But there are lots of other things which we now buy As a service. I mean, Uber is a classic example, Mm -hmm. Airbnb, uh, which are highly disruptive businesses, but which are essentially using the same model, which is to say, why own it when you can rent it? So long as you can be guaranteed that what you're going to buy is what you want and that it comes in a manner that is acceptable to you and at a Mm -hmm. price point that's acceptable to Mm -hmm. you. To answer your question, I sure as hell hope (laughs) will Because I invested a lot of time and a lot of money in building that business. But we've always been confident that that was the way in which the world was moving. Mm. So, yeah, I'm very confident that we're perhaps, you know, on the cusp of something, that we are part of a movement, which is about the fact that the measure of success is your ability to get the job done in an agile manner, not about where your resources sit.
0: But interestingly, to flip the conversation completely, anyone that's listening that thinks this sounds very interesting and maybe I'll up sticks and I'll take my talent and my expertise somewhere else and do it from a completely different location, another side of the world. There's more opportunities to do that then, surely, if this is more of a, a way that we're going to be working in the future.
1: All of the big marketing communications and or brand and advertising businesses in India, which have got international ownership yes the WPP companies for example yes they've all got British executives who are if you like expatriates who Mm. are in India for some period of time so Mm. yeah I mean I think I'm not the only one who's seen that as an opportunity it's Mm. an exciting market it's a challenging market but for the right people with the right kind of mindset yeah there are lots of opportunities and similarly in China Yes. And so you've got lots of people who can see that the skills and experience that they've developed in a market like the UK has value in other parts of the world because there's a willingness to learn. There's a recognition that, you know, the skills that, you know, London still has a really prestigious place, I think, in terms of being, if you like, the world capital for design, right? It's mm. got some fantastic institutions. It draws talent yeah is a Mm. magnet for talent Mm. but you know there's lots to be said for saying i understand the principles by which that's done the discipline that's required to be able to do design in a corporate environment yeah Mm. and people Mm. that have got that skill i think increasingly find that there are opportunities elsewhere you know, you get that at a small scale where you've got this idea of the sort of digital nomad, yeah, where yes. people just kind of go off and they've got their MacBook Air and they're yes. in some cases running a business, but in some cases just kind of doing their work, you know, doing their design work or doing their film editing or their content writing or whatever it is. You know, the sort of archetype of that is that they do it from a beach in Bali. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, if you can sustain that. I mean, ours is a different approach, which is that we're actually creating a business and an enterprise out of it. So yes. it's not simply about saying, okay, I want to go and spend three months of my year there and then move on to somewhere else. But, you know, you can see, I suspect that you've got people who are part of your own workforce, who may well have done that, who are around for a period of time when they know that you will have a demand for them and then are yes. off doing other exciting things. Absolutely. The rest of the time. Why Absolutely.
0: Not? Why not? Exactly. Yeah. I think it was a Harvard Business Review article not that long ago that talked about people doing tours of duty. Yeah. But it's exactly that. You know, you've got their talent for as long as they want to give it to you or as long as you need it for. And then they move on, they may come back. But I think we just, Have to get used to that dynamic now. It's quite exciting, actually. It's
1: exciting. And I think, you know, in some ways, the world of IT has led on that the agency world is not far behind that but you know even in our client organisations that ability to be able to ratchet up and ratchet down their workforce as and when they need it is clearly a key to being able to maintain their competitiveness.
0: You talked about agility and we're just seeing it all the time because the nature of the work is it's not one thing over and over again it's no longer that cookie cutter thing whereas I love it can I have 16 of it for the next five years.
1: (laughs) Well but but you're right so there is particularly in the world that you And I inhabit, in terms of the agency world, there is an expectation that we're going to be able to innovate and deliver new and fresh ideas. But at the same time, actually, there's still a lot of stuff that just is routine work that has to be done. So you take the annual report as an example, you know, the front end of that annual report is an interesting document. It's an opportunity for a company to tell its story in innovative ways, yeah? The back end of it is mm-hmm. essentially just a regulatory job. Right? You've got to put the numbers in there. Absolutely. And I doubt that there's very many of the team that you have here in your office who really want to spend their time doing that kind of work. It's just routine and mundane. They want to spend their time doing that strategic front end, creating yeah. something new. Great, let them do that. Let them yes. get rid of the other stuff. Yeah? yeah, So actually it's in part about doing more with less as you say and you're right that budgets are shrinking but it's also about just sort of shifting the focus so that you're creating opportunities for your people to do higher value work
0: yes absolutely but you touch on a very important point there as well but you can do the high-end big thinking innovative creative stuff but then you deliver it with a typo and the whole thing falls apart so <laughs> actually yeah. you know there's a certain amount of the work that just needs to get done and the heavy lifting that makes all the sort of jazz hands work but if yeah. you don't have it it and doesn't that end of it is
1: increasingly commodity as you and your listeners know.
0: Let's talk about Midnight's Grandchildren, yeah. which is subtitled How Young Indians Are Disrupting the World's Largest Democracy. And first of all, a quick explanation of where the title comes from. Yeah. Some people might be guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure that many of your erudite and well-read listeners will know that there was a Booker-winning novel published by Salman Rushdie called Midnight's Children. And essentially the central thesis of that was that there were a group of children who were born at the moment of India's independence and they were Midnight's grandchildren. And I thought, as I've said earlier on, you know, India's had these two moments of transformation. You've got independence, that is Midnight's grandchildren. And then you've got this era of economic liberalisation that begins in 1991. And I thought they are Midnight's grandchildren. So I thought that that might be quite an interesting sort of shorthand, if you will. For that generation of people. So I locked in on that and chose it to be the name of the book.
0: From memory, wasn't Salman Rushdie one not their death
1: threats? Yes, it was. Yeah. At the time, it was a that wasn't over midnight's children that was another book which was called the satanic Verses. the satanic yes. verses but maybe 20 years when there was you know a threat of death and he was under police protection that has more recently been lifted and I think he's sort of free to travel more widely and to be in the sort of public sphere again some of my friends play golf do you play golf
0: no no, no. I don't
1: either but my friends tell me that there is in the golfing world they use a Salman Rushdie to describe a green that's difficult to read.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll say your book is incredibly readable and very easy to find on Amazon. We'll put all the links to it on the show notes. There will be a lot of people listening or some people listening, I'm sure, who are thinking, I know I've got a book in me. What was the experience of writing a book like?
1: Well, so first of all, I hadn't had this sort of burning ambition to write a book. Oh. I was kind of quite happily getting on with my life, building a business, bringing up my children, having nice holidays. And I then came to London three years ago and I spoke at a breakfast seminar, which was actually organised by John Smythe at the show. And there was a member of the audience there. The title for that was around India's engagement agenda. And there was a gentleman in the audience who was a publisher at Routledge who said, I think that will make good book Ah. and kind of your ego steps in and you say yeah of course then I shall write a book I should be an author and then you get that moment of realisation where you think oh dear what have I (laughs) let myself in for (laughs) so I worked with Routledge who I thought were very good in terms of forcing me to develop a very detailed structure for it before they signed off on it I think that was very helpful and then I basically sort of didn't go to work for a year and again right. great thanks to my wife who stepped in and allowed me to take that time off in order to be able to go around and do all the interviews and then sit down and write the book i found it to be very exhilarating and at the same time challenging process i've made some reference in the book to the fact that it's a bit like running And I run, and one of the reasons I run is in order to be able to sort of manage the stress of living in this big, bad city. (laughs) You know, it's a coping mechanism for dealing with the stress of a overpopulated, polluted city. But you know, unless you put one foot in front of the other, nothing happens. There is no momentum. You know, in our professional lives, there is momentum because there's a client phoning up and saying, "When am I going to see that?" And there's teams of people who need to be nurtured and given some direction. And so your working day has momentum. When you're writing a book, there's no momentum unless you sit down and force yourself to write whatever your goal is it ain't going to happen so it required discipline one of the things I learned about myself is how self-disciplined I am able to be and how I'm able to kind of create momentum and get the job done another I had a little mantra for myself actually oh, right. okay. when I was doing the writing one of which was to retain the voice of authority. So I think there are moments when you think, is anybody interested in this? Have I got anything to say that anybody's going to be interested in? Right, so you have those moments of doubt. So I thought, no, 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 I've been out and I've interviewed 70 people and I've spent nearly a decade in India and actually I've got something interesting to say and I don't think it's been really written about. So retain the voice of authority. Number two was don't panic. (laughs) (laughs) Because again, you get these sort of moments of sheer terror where you think the enormity of it, how am I going to be able to do that? And my third mantra was, delegate right yeah. Okay. so you know there are things that you don't have to do yourself and so I looked to make sure that I'd got bright young people around me who were able to go off and do some of the research or do some of the fact checking or you know, yes. set up interviews for me because otherwise you know again it becomes somewhat overwhelming yeah yes. so retain the voice of authority don't panic delegate
0: sounds perfect advice for anyone listening I completely agree so I have to ask you this you've spent quite a while in IC in London, and now a decade in India. When you think about the future of internal communications in particular, let's bring it back to the subject here at hand. What's your prediction for where we go next as professionals? Anyone listening, thinking, I want to stay at the top of my game, I want to get to the top of my game. What do I need to be thinking about? What kind of skills do I need to be harnessing and growing? What do I need to be interested in?
1: So I think my starting point for this would be to say, recognise the fact that you're operating in a global environment. So even if your current job has you sat in a studio in Bermondsey in London, the reality is that the work that you are doing has a global impact. Yeah. So the clients that you are working for have international businesses right so some of the people that you're writing for or designing for are going to be in other parts of the world so recognize that fact and be interested in that so think about how do people receive and look for content in other places do they do it in the same way that we do it here or do they do it differently what are their design aesthetics yeah so you're not simply thinking about okay i do it like this because we've always done it like this but be interested and inquisitive and go out and think about how is design done in other parts of the world because the reality is that you know if you're a young person working in internal communications now at the beginning of your career that career will be one which will be increasingly global yeah Mm -hmm. the organizations that you work for will be increasingly global I think the second thing is to think about, if you like, the soft skills, at your ability to communicate with people who come from different backgrounds, yeah? your ability to influence, your ability to negotiate, your ability to work in that sort of global environment, to go and read a bit of Hofstede yes. and figure out, you know, where do I come from? What is my social or my cultural context? What is the cultural context of the people that I might be working alongside and to be prepared to invest in that so not just investing in your technical skills in terms of am I a great writer or am I a great designer or am I a great podcaster but to think about that in a context and to be able to build a skill set around that that allows you to operate in that sort of more global international intercontinental context.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful advice. Thank you. There feels to me like there might be a very slight elephant in the room here, given where we are today, the 1st of October 2019. You've landed back in the UK in the middle of, well, I was gonna say in the middle of Brexit, but Brexit's been going on for years. We can't remember a time when there wasn't Brexit, I don't think. I feel like we should touch on that very briefly because you're talking about globalisation. You're talking about the importance of feeling and understanding that you are part of a completely connected world. Your thoughts and reflections on having landed back in the UK and finding politics where it is at the moment.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) So as I left Mumbai, which was last Tuesday, I posted something on LinkedIn which said, right, I'm off to London to solve Brexit. Um, (laughs) I wish you would. (laughs) I think two things to this. One of which is that I recognise the fact that I live in a bubble, if you will. I'm part of an urban elite. When I was in London, I was part of an urban elite. And urban elites are not necessarily very good at understanding what's going on in other parts of their country or the world, right? Yes, In India, I'm even more part of an urban elite. Right. And, you know, I operate in a world where international travel is part of what I do. Talking to global organisations is part of what I do. The idea that we are better off in Europe is something which is part of my dna right Mm. but i also increasingly recognize the fact that many 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 other people probably the majority of the world doesn't live in the same world that i do and i'm very privileged and i have to recognize the fact that for other people there are other priorities yeah yes and that in a sense i'm part of the problem so i'm going and setting up a business in india which you know one lens through which you could look at what i do is that i'm taking away jobs for people in this country
0: Right. I actually
1: think that what we're doing is creating a business model which actually enables them to be more successful and to be more sustainable. But other people may take a contrary view on that. Mm. So I accept the fact that, you know, in some ways I am part of the perceived problem. Mm. And I think it's important to kind of recognise that. And the fact that the kind of conversations that you and I have or I have with other people who invite me to go and speak about the book and whatnot, we are in a privileged position and that we should be mindful of what other people's concerns are. Brexit in particular, I mean, my colleagues and contemporaries and people that I interact with in India just cannot understand what's going on. Really? Because, yeah, but, I you know, one of the things that's always really interested me is the British did terrible things in India during the era of the Raj, and yet... Indians are still very open to and very welcoming of things which are British. I mean, in a sense, they shouldn't be because of the terrible crimes that we committed, which, you know, in large part, we've found it very difficult to apologise for. And yet, you know, there is a real reverence if you will to British parliamentary democracy the mother of parliament it is still something you know India's democracy is essentially modelled on ours and the rule of law in India is essentially modelled on British rule of law so there is a reverence within which that is held and yet the sort of contemporary question is around well how the hell can they let that happen why doesn't somebody just stop it and you say, well, I don't, know. I don't know why somebody doesn't just stop it. But trying to explain the Irish backstop to people in India is kind of quite a difficult...
0: That must be quite challenging. Explaining it here is bad enough. Yeah,
1: it's difficult to people who are kind of party to it. But I think ultimately this is my observation. There is a whole lot of other interesting, exciting stuff going on in the rest of the world. And my frustration when I come back is that the only narrative in the UK is about Brexit. And it's at the expense of thinking about all the other exciting opportunities that are happening in asia for example Mm. you know we're in what's often been described as the asian century we're at a point now where more of global gdp is coming from asia than it comes from other parts of the world that's where the future is and i find it very frustrating that that's not part of the narrative and i mean i guess in part what i'm trying to do is to raise that to some degree and say there are other stories that we could be thinking about there are other parts of the world that we should be engaging with and Mm. not simply being inward looking and trying to solve the conundrum that mm, no, uh, no. is brexit yes. so it's sort of frustrating when you come back and then what i get is i get back to india and i'm very excited by and enthralled by a whole load of other stuff that's going on and brexit's kind of there but the rest of the world isn't losing sleep over it
0: no i can imagine just looking on with a degree of uh, curiosity and bemusement no doubt i'm sure yeah but and frustration
1: mm, and they're like no mm. just get on with it
0: I think lots of people at home feel exactly the same way. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Fantastic (laughs) to see you again, Katie, because our paths haven't really crossed for perhaps the last 15 years when we've been competitors, I guess. I guess so, yes. Competing for clients and some of the publications that you've got on your stand out there are things which I recognise. So it's lovely to be able to have the opportunity to come back, not in any kind of competitive environment, but to be able to have what I think has been a really fantastic conversation. So thank you for having the interest in inviting me along.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. All the resources we mentioned are in the show notes on AB's website. Pop along to abcom, abcom.co.uk. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called, I saw this and thought of you. It's full of newsy nuggets about comms, as well as updates on the show and the latest on my recent talks and presentations. If you're enjoying the show, please help us make this podcast more discoverable for other internal communicators out there. Now, I'm told the best way to do this is simply to rate the show on iTunes or subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. So I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who is supporting the show from Finland to Thailand and all points in between. You make it all possible. So, until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.